Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-454 of the Run Run Live podcast. Happy Mother's Day. How are all my moms out there, huh? I know how you are. You're sick of it. You carried them around for nine months. They beat the crap out of your body. You carried them around for another decade or so, and now what? No flowers? Ungrateful so-and-sos. No, that's not it? Well... Ollie and I, we drove over and visited my mom this morning, and we brought her some flowers. Uh, I was up early anyhow, because I went to get my second and final Moderna chip implanted today. Does anybody know how to link that to Strava? Anyhow, I feel fine, by the way. Thanks for asking. I might have overindulged in IPA last night, binge-watching Season 5 of The Expanse, but, you know, I, I might really not know if the shot made me feel hungover or not. So, you know. And uh, I'm still on the shelf. People keep asking me, how's the knee feel? And, and honestly, I can't really tell, right? I get some pain in there sometimes using it. But I'm not sure if that's the stress fracture or just old man pain. I mean, it's a broken bone. All I can do is stay off it and wait for it to heal. So... Not this week, but next week will be three months-ish and my follow-up with the knee doctor. And he'll probably send me off for another MRI. And then it'll be, uh, we'll start back. Start back on it. I've been walking the dog and riding my bikes. And this week I started working in some PT, some homegrown PT to get some knee strength in there and some stretching. So we'll see what happens. Like I said, all I can really do is wait. And the next big challenge for me, and I'm kind of looking forward to this, that next challenge is going to be slowly easing back in and not breaking myself through too much uh, enthusiasm. So this week we talk with Ken, who is working on an apocalypse running project to run every county in Ohio. It's funny how we itinerant runners. We make stuff up to stay interested in the game, right? In section one, I will talk about how the hot weather impacts your nutrition, right? So how to 
you know, drink and eat while it's hot out and you're running. And some tips to deal with that. And in section two, I will review a course I took on empathy this week. There you go, empathy. And I do miss running, especially in this nice spring weather. And I actually dreamt I was trail running this week. Very vivid dream, seriously. (laughs) And there I was on a warm afternoon cruising down a swoopy pine needle trail in the woods, just flying, feeling that runner's high. I was very happy. So, yeah, I miss it so much I'm dreaming about it. When I'm at work, I often will dig up quotes to just, you know, good quotes to help people voice, you know, some stuff that I think will help people. And the reason I use quotes is because it it is practicing social proof or third-party authority. Because if I just pop up and say, hey, 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 you, you should think about what you say. Instead of just yelling all the time, people would say, hey, who the hell are you to be telling me things like this? When you mind your own dang business. But if I were to publish a quote and just leave it out there, the same people will like it. And they'll say thank you for that, even though the sentiment is exactly the same. For example, this week, I have been posting a quote that goes like this. Raise your words not your voice, because it is rain that grows the flowers, not thunder. That's a quote by Rumi. So, a Persian Sufi poet from Afghanistan from the 13th century has more contextual authority than I do. Think about that. Yeah, but I am the messenger. And you can be the messenger, too. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Nutrition in hot weather. How do you get fueled and keep it down when it's hot out? You know, you've probably been there. You're out competing in a race or on a long training run in the heat and you feel nauseous. You know you need to fuel, but you can't force yourself to eat one more hot, sticky, sweet gel or take it to drag of that warm sports drink. Makes me feel sick just thinking about it. The problem is that even though it's hot out, you still need to take nutrition and fluids. So what's going on here? What are some strategies to cope with this? Well, you're probably already familiar with the symptoms. Nausea, dehydration, dizziness, a loss of energy that saps your performance. How do you get to this point? Well, when it's hot out, your body automatically uses its natural cooling system. For humans, this is our unique ability to sweat. Sweat glands in our skin push fluid to the surface. Uh, to the surface of the skin, where it can evaporate. And this is called the heat of vaporization and is very efficient. This evaporation takes advantage of a key natural property of water. Evaporation is when water converts from a fluid to gas. And to accomplish this state change, water molecules require energy, lots of energy. And they take this energy from heat. And since this water is sitting on your skin, that heat is pulled from your skin when the water evaporates. Cool, huh? 
And it may be obvious that evaporation works really well in dry air and not so well in humid air. In humid conditions, the sweat just sits on your skin, doesn't evaporate. But nevertheless, sweating to take advantage of the heat of vaporization is a very powerful way that our bodies manage heat. So have you ever been on a hot run and had a breeze kick up and blow by and you feel that sudden rush of coolness? That's vaporization. The breeze blows the particles away and it creates room for more particles to vaporize and creates that big rush of coolness. But but why does running in the heat make you nauseous? Well, your body isn't trying to keep your skin cool. That's just a means to an end. Your body is trying to keep your core cool by using the surface area of your skin. And since the skin is a place where the cooling happens, your body pushes blood away from your core and out to the skin so that cooled blood can be circulated back to the core. But there's only so much blood to go around, so your body pulls blood away from other core systems to reroute it to your skin. And one of these core systems is your digestive system. And when your gut doesn't get enough blood to do its job, you start feeling nauseous. And you can't process the fuel either. So have you've had this feeling on a hot day that the drink or food you just took in is just sitting in your stomach sloshing around, right? It's because your digestive tract isn't working anymore. So what are some solutions? What are some, some tactics, some strategies? Well, if you know it's going to be hot out, you can do some basic preparation, right? Um, first, be aware that alcohol... <laughs> <laughs> and medications can impact your body uh, negatively in the heat. Those three to four beers the night before your long run might not have affected you in the cold, but on a hot day can put you in a dehydration deficit right out of the gate. So check your medications, even some supplements, because you'd be surprised that some common stuff can really impact your heat response. And it's usually a good idea to dress for the heat, right? More skin exposed typically means more cooling surface, but also you have to be mindful of your sun exposure and be mindful of whether your sunscreen is going to hamper your sweating and cooling. So you got to figure all that stuff out. If you know you're going to be sweating heavily, you can preload some fluids like drink, you know, 16 ounces of sports drink 60 to 90 minutes before you head out. Not so much that you have to pee, you know, you don't want to pee it all out, but enough that you're not in a deficit when you start, especially if you're going out in the morning because you tend to wake up a little dehydrated. So you can avoid the heat, right? In training, you can do this more easily because you can just schedule around the heat. But that might not be a great idea because if your race is going to be in the heat, you'll want to acclimate, not avoid and especially this time of year when we transition up here in the northern hemisphere from cold to hot, it takes a few outings for your body to get used to the heat. But our bodies are amazing and will acclimate if we let them. So be mindful of those first few hot days that you're going to be challenged by the heat and plan accordingly. Don't expect your best performances. Practice your heat strategies. Be mindful of what your body is going through as it acclimates. So what do you do during a race in the heat to avoid getting dehydrated? Well, you know, in the past few years, there's been a lot of scare tactics around back of the Packers getting sick from drinking too much water or dropping dead from the heat. So it's important to understand what your body does in the heat. That's really what matters. How someone else reacts, 
or, you know, what makes the news really not important. It's how your body reacts. So I would question whether you want to take the advice of organizations that are trying to sell you nutrition products. Uh, There's a built-in conflict of interest there. But the first thing you need to do is get an estimate of your sweat rate. And this is very specific to the individual and can vary broadly across people and conditions. So it's a very simple process. You weigh yourself before a run, a hot run. You go run. You weigh yourself after, taking into account how much you drank during the run or peed. And whatever the difference is, that's your sweat rate on that day in those conditions. So you do this a few times and you'll have a nice inventory, a nice ballpark of your sweat rate so you can plan that. So once you know this, you can calculate how much fluid you're going to lose in a race, plus or minus, right? So for instance, my sweat rate when I was racing was around 16 ounces an hour. All right, sounds like a lot, right? But that's fairly normal. When you plan your fluid replacement strategy, your goal is not to replace all the fluid, nor is it to replace all the calories. You can't keep up. Your goal is to stay in the safe zone. The safe zone is 2 to 3% of your body weight during the race. So at the end of the race, you don't want to be more than 2 to 3% of your body weight lighter. 2 to 3% is normal. And that's a lot, right? For me, that's like 5.5 pounds. You don't have to stay even. You just have to stay inside the 2 or 3%. 4 to 6% starts getting dangerous. For me, that would be over 10 pounds of loss during a, a race. And I have gotten close to that in a hard marathon, but I was very well trained, very well acclimated. And when you get that dehydrated, you will start to feel those symptoms of nausea, dizziness, etc., etc. And in that case where I lost 8 to 10 pounds in a marathon, this means I was sweating out twice as much as I was able to take in. And that is unsustainable for a longer race. If I had to keep going, there would have been a reckoning. Uh, But, you know, you look at your race and you say, how much am I going to need? And then you plan accordingly. Uh, according to your sweat rate. So what about fuel? How do you get fuel in the heat? How do you get past that nausea? Well, you know, you can slow down. (laughs) You can stay in the shade. You can splash yourself with water. You can get ice drinks or ice on the course. Any kind of icy thing, you know, tends to help. All those other things that you do to keep cool, all that's going to help with your discomfort in eating. You can also adapt your fueling strategy to the heat. So practice working with lighter fare. Dilute your drinks so that you're getting less sugar and more water. Uh, Some people have better luck stomaching fruit or chewables or certain sports drinks. Some people have a lot of luck with tailwind, right? You experiment with that in your training and you see what works. And it's also good practice in the heat to take your fuel in smaller doses. You eat and drink a little bit constantly instead of big slugs at the aid station and that gives your digestive tract which is challenged because it's not getting enough blood it gives it the time it needs to digest those smaller batches of stuff and as always you can train for all of this you can practice scarcity runs where you go without fuel and water to acclimate your body slowly to the deprivation of a race And this will allow you to bounce back in a race and become less reliant on constant fueling. 
Remember, your body has plenty of fat. You can train yourself to be able to tap into those fat stores more easily. And the other thing that probably goes without saying is that you need more than just water, right? You need electrolytes, which is a catch-all term for things like sodium, magnesium, calcium, other stuff that you lose through your sweat. These elements are important. They impact the way your body absorbs glucose, so how you absorb nutrients, and the way that your muscles fire and other basic systems that you need to compete. And you can get electrolytes through most sports, nutrition, and many natural foods. I supplement with Endurolytes from Hammer for my electrolytes. I've always had good luck with them, and they're easy on the stomach for me uh, when I can't otherwise take other you know, heavier fuel. And you need all that stuff, not just the water and the sugar. So in summary, there's a lot of information around these topics available, but you need to discover what works for you. Your best strategy is to acclimate mindfully to the heat and practice what works for you and your requirements. And now for today's featured interview. So Ken, here, how are you? Give us the 200 words, who you are, what you do, and uh, why we're talking. First of all, thank you for having me. My name is Ken Lute. I'm a radio technician for a long time. I started running basically just before I turned 50. It's those zero birthdays that always do it to you. I'd run a little bit in my life before that, but never more than three, four months at a time. But when 50 was coming up, it made me want to prove to myself I wasn't old, damn it. So I started running. And I've I've been doing a few things since then, trying to keep myself motivated and happy with my running. I always try and set myself different goals. And my current goal right now is to try and run in every one of the 88 counties in Ohio. Okay, so give us some Ohio facts here. How big is Ohio? Oh, where the hell is Ohio? Where the hell are those square states in between? It's it's not quite square. Not quite square. One of the things I find really funny about Ohio is that it's a northern border state, even though like Chicago is north of us. And I consider Chicago the middle of the country. But because of the Great Lakes, Ohio's Ohio's a northern border state. I grew up in Southern California. I've spent 25 years of my life living in Australia, 25 years of my adult life living in Australia. I've only been in Ohio for the last seven years. Okay. So what's a county? So basically, the majority of states have counties. I did a little bit of research. I found some have boroughs and some have a few other parishes. Parishes. Yeah. But um, so basically, a county is a subdivision that lets them have more political people for the boys. Is <laughs> a pessimistic view of the whole thing. Ohio actually runs 13th for the most number of counties in the state. Okay. And so how many counties did you say there was? 88. 88. Okay. So this I said is a pretty, pretty good goal. He said, what, are they like three blocks big? <laughs> <laughs> but no, we do well. If you really want to run a lot of counties, move to Texas. You have 254. Yep. Yeah, because you got Cleveland up on the lake. That's yes. the northern border. I've run the Cleveland Marathon a few times. It and I have a, a love-hate relationship. It loves to make me hate it. <laughs> I ran the Burning River. I think that's in Ohio. There you go. So you're running every one of these 88 counties. So what are your rules? Because when you set up one of these games for yourself, which let's face it, right? That's what it is. It's a right. game. That's right? all we create is. these games. You know, a lot of people are doing every road in their town or every road <laughs> in their city. Or yep. you know, I see some folks that do the you know the highest point in every state. There's another one people do. What are your rules? Basically, I'm keeping it pretty easy on myself. It's a one mile minimum. You talk about people doing that. I have a friend in Hamburg who's doing every street in Hamburg, which 
is a huge undertaking. That's going to be a few years. And, and I look at projects like his and I think, yeah, mine's just a little baby project, but it keeps me happy and it keeps me out there and it keeps me running. My work takes me all around the state and to a lot of state parks. So that's one of the real advantages. I've run in some pretty neat places in the Ohio and Erie Canal, Towpath, East Fork State Park, Mohican State Park. I've done the, actually my longest race I've ever done was the 50 miler at Mohican. I did that back in 2016. It gets me around to the different parks. There are times like earlier this week, I was down in Butler County, which is down just north of Cincinnati. So the southwestern part of the state. Do you know our friend Kevin Gwynn down there? No, no. no. Uh, Harvey Lewis is down that way as well. We have a yeah, a lot of runners in Ohio. And we have some very good ultra runners in Ohio all around. They're especially even locally here in my little podunk Zanesville area. Yep. I'm sort of Zanesville, Ohio here is sort of in the middle of the state. So a few days ago, I was down in Butler County. I hadn't gotten Butler County. I did a quick one mile run at the tower site I was at in my work uniform. Went around to a bunch of other sites I had to do, and then looked like I had a couple hours to spare. So I changed into my running clothes and went up to Montgomery County, and I got a few miles in there. And then I went over to Preble County, and I ran a couple miles there, and, and then drove two and a half hours home again. So I try and fit it in when I can, and I'll do weird things like that to get them in. I did stop in the middle of a rest area in one county. I don't remember which one it was. And I just did a mile in the parking lot in the rest area on the side of the interstate just yeah. to get that. So yeah. lots of, so from from fun interesting state park runs to interstate rest stops whatever it takes to to get the county in. How many days have you given yourself? Um, unlimited. Unlimited. Like I said, this is mostly for fun. It's motivation. It's something just to get me out there and keep me going. I don't consider this any great feat or anything like that. It's as you said, it, it's a fun little game. It's no Ed Eddinghausen trying to do forty two hundred milers. Yeah. <laughs> How many of the eighty eight counties have you gotten in so far? Up to 34 at the moment. That's pretty good. Went back the other day and I went through my Strava because I hashtag it with Run Ohio through my Strava so I can find them again. And I neglected to get a couple on my spreadsheet. So getting towards halfway. So where'd you live in Australia? I lived in Perth, Western Australia. Okay. I worked up on the mines and I was working up on the mine sites when I started running. Huh. The sort of job I did up there is I would fly up to the mine site. And depending on which job I was doing, I was up there for nine or 11 days at a time. And then I would fly home for five or three days at a time. So I I was basically living on the mine site. So I would, these mine sites are the middle of nowhere. I could be two and a half, three hours from the nearest town uh, driving. So I'd go out for 18, 20 mile runs after work, after a 12 hour work day. And so I wouldn't be getting back until 8, 39 o'clock at night. And I'd actually have to leave travel plans with security. They would make me do that with a map of where I was going and, and check out with security when I left and check in when I got back, because if I got lost or hurt out in the middle of the outback, nobody was going to know where to find. Yeah. Me. There's nothing out there. No. And there's except a lot of things that bite. Right. Right. Lots of snakes. I was actually a, that was one of the fun things I did on the mine side is I was actually a registered snake catcher. I was licensed by the state to catch <laughs> poisonous snakes and go re-release them in the wild. Cool. Yeah. I haven't been to Perth. I spent some time in uh, Sydney back in a uh, long time ago, but uh, very not pretty. Perth. Yeah, very... one of my favorite places. But moving from Southern California to Ohio, that's different. That's like night and day. I mean, well, people, Southern California if was. If you're not from the United States, you don't realize that we're like a bunch of little countries. <laughs> we really are. We really, really are. And I'm from the LA suburbs. So it's not like I was out in the country of, of LA. So living in, in little Zanesville here in the middle of Ohio. I think our population is somewhere around 12,000 or something like that here in Zanesville. It's a bit of a change, but I feel more at home here than I did in Australia. I really enjoyed my 25 years in Australia, but I was always an outsider. 
here I'm, I'm I'm back home. Yeah, I don't know I don't know about Perth, but where I was in Australia, they had a really cool culture. It was just uh, they liked to have a lot of fun. They worked hard, but only when it was working time. And then when it wasn't working time, they took off, went surfing. So they had a really good culture. Not like here, where when you work all day and then you work some more, right? <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I, I do like about Zanesville is is we've got a really great running community in my little town here. <laughs> We've got ultra marathoners who routinely do 100 milers just for fun. Mike Schreiber, Gabe Rainwater, you might have heard his name around at some of the 100 milers. Gabe's got a a pretty good name in the community. He's done the last 11 Mohican 100 milers, but a really great community here. And that's, that's an important part of running, I think, is having a good community to help support you and people to talk to with the... Yeah, it's tough right now with the pandemic has been tough for the last year when you haven't been able to get to see your people. Is that why you sort of started making up something new to do or? It helped. It helped. Um, And like you said, this is just a little game I'm doing. One of my big motivators at the moment is I'm on a run streak. This is my second run streak. So the 2016 leap year, I belong to smashrun.com. I love smashrun.com. For people who need motivation and stuff like that, you can get some really neat tweaking of your data on smash run, but they have all these weird challenges like running during 10 full moons or, or streaking a leap year or doing this or that and, and lots more fun games to keep yeah. the motor. So back in 2016, I did the leap year run streak and I stopped immediately after and 2020 came around and I thought, and I, the last few years before I'd sort of been backing off on my running. So I needed to force myself. So I started another run streak for 2020 and I've kept it going this time because I'm going to be 59 this year. So 60 next year, another one of those obnoxious zero birthdays. That's a mile a day, right? Is the Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and there's lots yeah. Of days. I think I'm about 850 miles so far. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> um, 850 days. No, yeah, for, for this year. Sorry. Oh, for uh, this year. The, the okay. streak, yeah. The streak, I did 1700 miles last year or just under 1700 miles last year. I'm doing this run streak now and that's, making me run so I can be ready for my 60th birthday. My longest run ever was 50 miles at Mohican. So I'm aiming for 60 miles on my 60th birthday. There you go. So by forcing myself to continue this run streak to at least my comma day to day 1000, I'll keep my base up to build up. And that'll come just after my 60th birthday, my 1000th day. Eisenwell, another fun, fun game. you're, You're gamifying the whole thing. And I think the other thing was you start two factors, right? One is most of us are now mid backers, right? If we ever were. So oh, yeah. You look at that, you go, breaking my 10K PR is not a motivator for me anymore, right? No. It's an anti motivator, right? <laughs> you try to find things that are interesting and compelling that don't necessarily have to do with distance or time or pace or speed or play with those things. So I think it's interesting because people naturally love to gamify stuff. And if you can do it within a community, that's even better. I mean, you see how Marathon Maniacs does that, right? They gamify it and they get all these, you know, sort of back of the pack, middle of the packers to go and have fun and participate, do big things. And I think the other thing is, as you get older, you just can't do more. Your default was always to do more, right? So you say, yeah. if, if I did a 10K, oh, okay, I'll do a half marathon. I'll do a marathon. I'll do a 50 mile. That logic stops at some point, right? So again, you got to find ways to keep it interesting. So what have you learned by doing this out there on the road? I've learned that the government needs to invest in more bike and walking trails. Hmm. Here in Ohio, there are lots of rural counties that are poor counties that don't have a lot of money and they don't have any biking or hiking trails. So you wind up running on the roads and most of them are county farm roads. 
which have no sidewalks, no berm you can run on. They're doing 55, which means they're really doing 70 past you. You got farm dogs running off the farms. I've learned we really need to invest. I've been giving to rail to trails, supporting their cause and, and yeah. trying to get back and hoping to get things going. Along yeah, that. A, I, I know exactly what you mean. And that's not just Ohio. That's any place in rural United States. You get those really skinny roads that are high travel, high speed, and nothing on the edge. You step off yeah. the edge, you're in the bushes. You're in the ditch. Yeah, yeah. You got to run actively. Got to run with an active defense. And then if it snows, it's even worse. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was a good winter for snow this year. I did a couple really good snow runs, and it was amazing for how much slower I was running. It was amazing how much more I hurt at the end of a half marathon snow run. Yeah. So what is uh, your best story? I mean, whenever I do these sort of things, I do the same thing, right? When I used to travel, you get out and just point yourself in one direction and run, and you always find odd things or meet odd people or run across something odd that you're like, oh, geez, I wish I had a camera if you didn't bring <laughs> your phone with you. What's your best stories? You, the cattle in the outback, most of the mine sites are on cattle leases. So when you're running at night in the outback in Australia, you, you see these little red glowing lights in these bushes, which are the eyes of cows. It's kind of bizarre. Probably my best running story would be when my wife and I went on vacation to Scotland with some friends. And I'd get up early in the morning and go running in Scotland. Scotland is a wonderful place to go running. Just take off around a lock or around a bay and and just I, any country you go to. But I, I particularly enjoyed doing this in Scotland. Just the sights and the scenery and, and everything else. We were in the northern part of Scotland around the highlands and islands. And just amazing stuff out there to, to see. Yeah. You'll have a lot of epiphanies. feel transported. I did. I did. <laughs> You say that, it's funny. My, my wife's not a runner. She tried to run with me for a while and she gave it up. She said she kept looking for that runner's high and just never found it. And she doesn't understand that we don't always really see that runner's high when we're out there. Last year, I was supposed to run in the Columbus Marathon and of course it got canceled. But I'd done all of this training. So I said to some of the, the younger guys in my running group, I said, I need some rabbits to take me on a marathon. And I mapped out a marathon route and we were training and it was like three weeks before and it was my last long run and I was running with one of my friends and we were doing about 19 miles, I guess. I knew I should be resting and going back, but I really wanted to do something to give myself confidence. I did that 19 miles at an average of about 850. Now, remember my previous best on marathon was about 420 for the marathon. And I did that whole 19 miles at about an 850 pace. I was like on cloud nine for the rest of the day. That was the best runner's high I've ever had. That was amazing. We did run the marathon from Zanesville down to McConnellsville following the Muskingum River. I did it in just over 355. So it was it was a very nice PR. And, and I really appreciated my friends for getting me out there and playing rabbit and pacing me for it. Yeah. So you say you run on the towpath, the Erie Canal portion? Yes. Yeah. I've run on that in New York. It's really nice. It's like it's designed for running. Right. That's the same with the rails to trail stuff that you have as well. I know there was one county I was driving through and I was thinking, should I get a run? And I'm just seeing all of these farm roads thinking, nah, I'm not going to do it. And all of a sudden I passed a sign that said bicycle crossing. I say, yes. And I slammed on the brakes and I found a place to park and I was able to go find this rail to trail bike path and get, you know, about three, four miles in. It was good. Yeah. Towpaths and, and rail to trail stuff. So what a lot of people don't know about Ohio is they, you think Ohio, you think Midwest, you think flat. And there are parts of it that are flat, but most of it is not flat, right? Correct. The Western half is very flat. 
And that's where most of the people get their opinion from. But over here in central to eastern area, we're the start of the Appalachian Mountains over here. And it's quite hilly and quite exciting sometimes. Not not real mountains like my Southern California mountains or anything like that, but hilly enough to keep things interesting. Yep. Hilly and forested, which people don't get that picture when they think uh, Midwest. They think endless wheat fields, as far as the eye can see. And Ohio is not like that. It is a part of it, but... uh, like you're saying, it has the Appalachian Mountains running right through it. So pretty place. I almost feel like we need to do a better job by advertising our gems here in the States. We get so much crap thrown at us through the media. Nobody ever talks about how just it's such a big place, the United States. I mean, Australia is bigger, but there's so much diversity in terms of the desert, the mountains, the everything, right, in the United States. Exactly. When I lived in Australia, I talked to people and they say, oh, I've been to the U.S. And I say, yeah, where have you been? Oh, we went to California and went to Disneyland. I said, yeah, you haven't been to the U.S. Or Americans say, I've been to, I mean, you've been to Sydney and Sydney's nice, but you haven't really seen Australia. You've seen a very beautiful city, but the Outback or Ayers Rock, Uluru there. And and I've run around Uluru quite a few times up in Brisbane in the rainforests, along the beaches, Everywhere in the world has has their beautiful places. And, and one of the best parts about running is it gives you a chance to get out there and get up close and personal with it and really yeah. enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. That's a new project, right? We got to do a project that says uh, best running in every 50 states. So not just a 50 states project, but a find the beauty 50 states project, right? I'm sure you have lots of people who could help contribute to that and make up some kind of list. Yeah, the best could, place to run in every state. Yeah, because you'd have places like New Jersey, and people will say, "Ah, oh, there's no place like that." No, I've been in places in New Jersey that were gorgeous. If you get west of the city, it's beautiful out there. New project. All right. So, you got any other plans coming up that are interesting? If they're going to run the Columbus Marathon, I might do that this year. Otherwise, I'm I'm really focusing on the 60 miler on my 60th birthday. So we got a crew of people going down to run the Burden Hand Half Marathon in Amish country in Pennsylvania from one of my online running club. That sounds interesting. Yeah. When is it's not a, not a far drive for you either. No, no. When is that one? September 11th, I think. Okay. Yeah. It's one of these 2000 person races in a town of 500 people. <laughs> Might have to look into that one. All right. Well, I'll let you go. Thanks for chatting. All right, Chris. Thank you very much Pleasure. for having me. Let me know if you need anything. Will do. Thank you, sir. All right. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Okay, my friends, we're going to talk about empathy at work. This is from a LinkedIn learning course that I took last week. Yeah, you know, got to keep the the saw sharp. And plus, you know, I got to practice that empathy, especially with customers. It's hard sometimes. So I took this LinkedIn learning course on empathy. So what is empathy? It is the ability to understand others' feelings and then to share those feelings with them. It's the old saying of putting yourself in their shoes. And why do we care about empathy? Well, because it's been shown that empathy leads to better outcomes at work and in all our relationships. When you have empathy, people like you. They want to work with you. You forge stronger relationships, and in the end, you're happier. But empathy, like most skills, is learnable and takes practice to become proficient at. 
So you may have heard in the past about EQ, which is emotional quotient, which is like IQ is intelligent quotients. They talk about people having EQ. So empathy is part of your EQ tool set. Emotional maturity starts with you. EQ has five elements. The first is self-awareness, where you have an understanding of yourself and how others see you. The second is self-regulation, which means you're not letting your emotions drive the bus and override your actions. The third is motivation, which is owning and internalizing your emotions. And the fourth is empathy, shifting that focus to others. The fifth is social skills, so being able to communicate empathically. And you can see you can't get to four and five unless you get one, two, and three, which is the self-awareness, the self-regulation, and the self-motivation, the intent, right? Then you can practice empathy. So a lot of it starts with you. So the key here is that empathy is part of EQ and the part of EQ where you shift from a focus on self to a focus on others. Now, empathy, like I said, is something you can practice. There are three types of empathy. There is one, cognitive empathy, where you know what others are feeling, but you don't necessarily share that feeling. You stay a bit aloof. Then there, number two, is emotional empathy. And this is where you feel their emotions with them. And third is compassionate empathy. And this is where you not only feel it, but you connect and you take action based on that share, that shared emotion. Okay, so that's what empathy is. So what are the benefits of this? Why would you want to do this? Well, empathy creates better relationships. Empathy creates a safe place in the relationship. At work, empathy is great for customer service, for dealing with customers, and for motivating those customers as well. You become very motivational. So you can influence people if you're practicing empathy. And empathy will make your employees, if you're a boss, it'll make your employees more loyal and more happy. And presumably they'll get more done <laughs> and make you more money if they're happy. And empathy at the end of the day means less stress for you and it will make you calmer and happier. So some people will have a concern though. Some people, maybe some old baby boomers like me, will have a concern that, hey, should I be practicing this empathy? Sounds a little woo-woo to me. They will think that empathy will be seen as weakness and maybe also a waste of time, right? They might feel that they just don't have the ability to be empathic, right? I'm, not, I'm just not wired that way. I'm not wired for empathy. That's not who I am. Well, in response to that, empathy is not a weakness. If you are self-aware and have emotional control, if you understand your own goals and you've set good boundaries, you can practice empathy and be strong and make it part of your strength, part of your leadership, right? So empathy actually becomes a strength. The focus that having empathy creates, that will save you time, not waste it you're going to get more done. So practicing empathy will make you more efficient because you're not struggling against that, that tide all the time. And even though you may think that you're not naturally wired for empathy, right? It is a skill you can learn. 
and you can get better through practice. In fact, if you have struggled with empathy, as I myself honestly have, this is a great opportunity for you to grow and get stronger. How about that? It's an opportunity. So how do you practice empathy? What are some of the tactics? Well, it really comes down to listening skills. You have to actually listen to people and not just wait to talk, right? You know that thing where somebody's talking at you and you're thinking about what you're going to say next? Don't do that, right? Don't one-up people in conversations. They tell you this story and say, yeah, 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 but this one time I did something even cooler, right? Someone tells that story and you wade in with a follow-up with a cooler story of your own. Don't do that. Don't judge people. Don't problem solve. Just acknowledge it. Let let them process. Let them have their, their, their light, right? And part of having good empathy, remember, is that self-awareness and that, that self-confidence. Um, you can't be insecure. You have to have enough self-confidence to be comfortable with not knowing everything, with your own ignorance, right? Empathy is a learned skill, so you can practice it. Ask for feedback. Commit to learning. Commit to discovering. Practice having the mind of a student when it comes to empathy. And remember, it's really just good listening skills. Listen with the intent to understand. Ask for explanations. Tell me more about that. Ask clarifying questions. Summarize. So what you're saying is X. Monitor your own nonverbal communication, right? What are you doing? Are you looking around the room while this person's talking to you? Is your, are you giving them an uncomfortable stance? Are you restless? Watch their nonverbals as well. You can almost cultivate sort of a third person, a bird's eye view of yourself in that conversation with that person. And remember, make that eye contact. Nod your head. Lean in. Be engaged. Say, uh-huh. Tell me more, right? Empathy. And ask yourself some questions, right? What is their narrative? What's the story they're telling? What do they know? What do they believe? And how are you similar? Because these similarities are what you're going to hang your empathy on. And how do you communicate empathy? Well, you're going to smile, right? You're going to have genuine enthusiasm for people. You're going to ask those follow-up questions. You're going to be curious. You're going to create that safe space for them to go deeper in the conversation. And if you get good at this, people will really enjoy your company. They will look forward to spending time with you. They will trust you. They'll seek your advice. Your ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes, that becomes a superpower for self-awareness. And in a corporate world, you have to be careful Because some people will use this superpower for bad, right? They'll use these tools of empathy to manipulate other people. And, you know, you may just not be in a good company. So look at the culture of your company. Is empathy encouraged? Is empathy part of your culture? Do you see your leadership, the leadership of the company, do you see them practicing empathy? That'll give you an idea about the culture of the company. These tools are also a great way to manage difficult relationships or difficult people, right? So instead of being defensive and and (laughs) running away, you can lean in and learn something about them. Get on the same side of the table with them. Now, interestingly enough, and I know this is true because I experienced this, 
there is such a thing as empathy fatigue, right? So if you're leaning in, you're having this emotional empathy all day long, you may need to step aside. You may be drained at the end of the day. You may have no empathy left, especially those of us who are a bit introverted. For you to have empathy, you need to practice self-care, right? You need to take care of yourself. You need to pull back from those empathy situations and try to be cognitive every once in a while. And it always helps to have a trusted person to talk to about it. Always helps to pause. Always helps to take a deep breath. So to summarize, empathy is a powerful thing. Empathy will help you forge stronger relationships and has a number of positive impacts on your life and in your career. Empathy can be practiced. All it really takes is for you to learn how to listen, be curious, be open to new experiences, have positive intent. And that's what I learned about empathy this week. Now, our homework, you and I, our homework assignment is to go out and practice it. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, we have run from Cleveland to Cincinnati and all over Ohio to the end of episode 4-454 of the Run Run Live podcast. Thank you for joining. I wonder how many people in Cincinnati could tell you who Cincinnatus was. I mean, it's not their fault. It's been, what, 2,500 years since Cincinnatus was walking the earth? But of course, because I'm that guy, I'm going to tell you about it, right? So Cincinnatus was a Roman politician slash military leader guy early on in Roman history, way, way back, before the empire, before even Alexander the Great. Cincinnatus was born in 519 BC, so 500 years before the birth of Christ in our Western calendar. And back then, Rome was just a city. Stick with me, it's okay. We're going to learn something today. And this was when there was no standing army and Rome was a republic. So when they got in trouble, they'd promote somebody. They'd go, hey, you, you're the dictator now. Go get stuff done. And Cincinnatus got appointed to dictator twice in two really dicey sort of war situations and did really well. And the dictator... That was, you know, basically when the Senate couldn't get stuff done fast enough, they just appointed somebody to dictate. But famously, Cincinnatus, he could have just parlayed that dictatorship into a kingship. He could have just taken over Rome. They would have let him, but he didn't. He retired to his farm. And he wasn't the guy that grew the cabbages. That was Diocletian who did the same thing. But the point is, you see, Cincinnatus became a metaphor for public service, for selfless service to the Republic. And that's why when you hear someone called a modern-day Cincinnatus, what they're saying is that person put public service above themselves. So there you go. History lesson over. Can't help myself. Sorry. So I took Ollie Wally for a nice long walk today up around my old prep school in Groton. I was trying to walk the old cross-country course, but I think they may have changed it because I ran into some some stuff that wasn't there before <laughs> 40 years ago, uh, 45 years ago. Anyhow, Ollie got, it was nice and sunny out, so Ollie got all hot and got all tired out, which is perfect. I think our cross-country course was like two miles, maybe, I'm remembering, in the the prep, prep league, the prep private league. 
there was no consistency. There was no consistency in the courses and the distances, any of that stuff. So we had some that were as short as like 1.5 miles and some that were up close to three miles, but they're all in that kind of range. None of them were 5Ks, which I think is the standard. They were all short. And some of them had obstacles that you had to navigate, like a steeplechase, like trees and staircases and stuff. But, it, yeah, it's super pretty over there on the campus this time of year. It's really pretty. Did I tell you yet about my greenhouse? Yes, I made a little hothouse this year to keep my baby vegetables in. And here's why. Because with the apocalypse, one of the things that sells out is the veggies for your garden. And they sell out before it's time to plant. So it gives you a conundrum. You can either plant your vegetables early, which makes them sad. It kills plants. Or you can wait and not get what you want. So I fix that with my little hothouse. I can sprout seeds and I can keep the herbs and the veggies alive and happy for a couple weeks until it's time to plant. And it works great. I'm very happy with it. The only issue I have is that some of these windy or stormy days, it uh, it threatens to blow away. So I have to stack some rocks on it. And I see a lot of you are out back racing in person. That's so cool. I'm getting lots of emails from races exuberantly celebrating their comeback events. That's awesome. And did you see Boston, which is postponed to the fall? They did their registration last week. And it turned out you would need to beat the qualifying time by 7 minutes and 47 seconds to get in. And for me, that would be better than a 327. That's pretty fast. I haven't run that fast since probably 2010, uh, 11 years ago. Uh, But I had already signed up for the virtual, so I will not be running in Hopkinton this year. But we'll see. I might go jump in to pay somebody if they want the company. Uh, There's a pretty nice, logical place to do that. You can jump in at the fire station in, uh, I think that's in Framingham, and then go into the finish line from there. That's a good segment. Takes you through the hills. So that's it. I'm fully vaccinated. I'm nearing the end of my running purgatory period with the stress fracture. And the races are opening up. It's a beautiful day. It's a new dawn. All systems are go. I published episode 15 of my new Apocalypse podcast last week. I'm up to, what, 6,500 downloads, so it's starting to build an audience. And I can use whatever help you can still, you know, whatever help you can give me to spread the word. If you have any science fiction geek friends, it's a serial, so every week is a new chapter, right, telling a story. And I try to keep the story moving along. I get to practice character development and action and narrative. Kind of fun. And sometimes I leave the listeners with a cliffhanger. So they have to tune in for the next show. And as I move you towards the exit, let me tell you a story. Where did the phrase cliffhanger come from? Well, thank you for asking. It originated as a concept in the late 1800s in Victorian serials. But it was popularized in America specifically in an early film serial called The Perils of Pauline, where they would literally end the serial with Pauline hanging from a cliff. And The Perils of Pauline was publicized. William Randolph Hearst, he was in cahoots with the movie guys and they would promote each other, uh, the newspaper magnet back then. And he would have 
cliffhanger articles in his newspaper so that you have to go see the film to find out what happened. And the cliffs that she's hanging off of, by the way, were actually in New Jersey, because this is where the film industry was before it moved out to Hollywood. So there you go. Fun fact to share with your running buddies. When you're out on your next little trot, I'm going to practice a bit of cognitive empathy now by calling out three more of our Run Run Live members, the people who pay for membership. And first is my longtime friend and co-conspirator, Eric, who has a strange fascination with llamas and suffering. So don't worry, Eric, we'll be back to our adventures in no time at all. Next is Lawrence, who is the commander of a rogue stateless submarine that prowls the Pacific, preventing the abuse of sea lions and baby seals. Good work with that, Lawrence. And finally, our third friend is our old friend George from Germany, who is a famous fashion designer working mostly with faux animal prints and spandex. It's very popular with the ladies. And thank you all for your long time and continued support. I would have hung up the microphone years ago if I didn't have you folks lurking around my back door waiting for an episode to drop. And I hope everyone is healthy and happy. Take the time to practice your empathy, be kind, help each other, and I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. It was no longer a section building still standing, but uh, they were made of wood. So we can get some ideas from the plan. And they're mostly the ones that have been They're mostly rectangular. Rectangular building with a thatched roof on the top and possibly sloping at the ends to another door. What about the ditches? The ditches are what you'd expect to find in a modern housing estate. Uh, sometimes coming off the street at one end. Uh, there's a number of boundaries. <coughs> 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 <coughs>